Good morning, everyone. This week, our church is out at Silver Lake for our church camp out. And I know not everybody was able to make it there, so I wanted to pre-record this sermon so that you can stay connected with us and with this series we've been on as we focused on the spiritual practices uh, this summer. As I was preparing for the campout, it was reminding me of the first campout that Julie and I did with our two-and-a-half-year-old James. It was the first time camping as parents, and uh, it was a particularly difficult trip. I remember laying awake, hearing the loud, rowdy uh, neighbors in the campsite beside us, my sleeping bag split open, letting cold air in. It started raining, and James kept stirring and crying. We were so frustrated as we laid awake, wondering what we were doing camping with a toddler that we actually decided to put James in the car seat, and we, at 4.30 a.m., drove around until morning. You know, when you think about it, camping is a bit of an odd thing to do. We spend money reenacting a primitive type of life. It's like we're paying to experience hardship, especially if you're in a tent with kids. And yet, camping is such a popular activity we had to book this uh, group site for our camp uh, months in advance, and the day the sites came available, the whole summer was booked within the first hour. Uh, people who want uh, to go to a state site will have to book a year in advance. Despite its obvious limitations, there's something about this activity that draws us towards it. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we're so interested in this activity is that it offers us something that daily life doesn't. There's something about the countercultural act of living a simpler life that speaks to some of the things that we're missing in modern life. You know, camping brings us out into nature. It's a simpler life. But I think one of the draws is that it brings us into relational proximity with people. You know, normally we're all spread out, we're in our own homes, isolated from one another, but when you're camping, you're just more connected with people. Uh, kids are building relationships with strangers, people are talking with one another, we're just more connected. And I think that is something that we long for in our day and age. Modern life is very isolating for us. The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has actually declared loneliness an epidemic in our country. And he, he writes this, Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation has been an underappreciated public health crisis that has harmed individual and societal health. Our relationships are a source of healing and well-being, hiding in plain sight, one that can help us live healthier, more fulfilled, and more productive lives. Isn't that interesting to think of loneliness as an epidemic? There's numerous research that suggests it actually has a significant effect on our physical health. In fact, some studies suggest that loneliness is more detrimental to our health than our diet. The pastor and writer John Ortberg once commented on these studies and said that the conclusion he drew from this reality is that it's better to eat Twinkies with friends than to eat broccoli alone. 
So we have an epidemic of loneliness, and maybe that's something that you are experiencing. Perhaps you are feeling that isolation and that lack of connection with others. There are a number of things that contribute to this. I think technology is an obvious one. Albert Sue, in his book, uh, writes that air conditioning or central air brought people indoors and television kept them there. And so our modern lives are set up to isolate us from one another. Uh, another commentator says that we have replaced community with cocoonity. So we've developed cocoons in the modern world. We have so many things that keep us disconnected from one another. Another factor, I think, is just the decline of many of our social institutions. And so religious participation uh, in the local church is in decline. Engagement with uh, civic groups has uh, declined significantly. And so we are in a situation where we're facing isolation and loneliness. Well, the scriptures, by contrast, call us to live a very different life, an intentional life of community with one another. And so this week, as we're camping together and experiencing community in that way, I thought that we would speak about this practice of community and fellowship. Now, there are a number of texts we could look at. In fact, there's over a hundred uses of the phrase one another in the New Testament. Paul often talks about how we ought to love one another, bear one another's burdens, teach one another, encourage one another. It's just all throughout the New Testament. The Christian life is meant to be a communal life with one another. Well, the text that I, I thought I'd zero in on for our conversation today on the purpose and practice of fellowship is John 17. 20 to 23. I just wanted to read this short passage for us. And so Jesus is praying in this moment, and he says, my prayer is not only for them alone, his current disciples, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So this is actually speaking about us. My prayer is that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What I find profound about this text is that this is Jesus' final prayer before he's arrested and taken off to be crucified. One uh, writer, Bill Donahue, comments that it is sometimes said that when someone faces death, one's conversation reveals his or her deepest passions, hopes, and dreams. And so here in Jesus' final moment before he is taken away, this rises to the surface as one of his deepest passions, hopes, and dreams that we might be one as he envisions being taken from this world and crucified. His parting concern is that his people would remain unified, that they would remain in community, that they would not be drawn apart and divided. So we see how central this is to the heart of Jesus. 
Now notice that Jesus connects this desire for unity to his own relationship to the Father. In verse 22, or 21, sorry, we read, I pray that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I think this points us to something very profound. The call to live in community and unity flows directly from the nature of God. God himself is defined as a relationship. We see here the doctrine of the Trinity at work. God is one and yet three. He exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so uh, to be created in the image of God is to participate in that relational nature. This is part of what it means to be created by God. You know, the origin of this idea comes to us in Genesis 1, 26, and, and here we read, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Notice the use of the plural tense here. Let us make man in our image. What Genesis 1, 26 suggests is that we were created with this community gene, we have a Trinitarian gene. To be made in the image of God is to be at its very core a relational being. That's how we experience true and full life. We are made to be in community. I think we see glimpses of this community gene in our own experience, and perhaps you've experienced that in your own life where you've just had that deep need to connect with other people, that intrinsic need for relationship. You know, I'm more of an introvert, but I remember experience where I was deeply craving conversation with other people. I was on a backpacking trip in another country. I didn't speak the language. And for the first two weeks, it was great. It was just me and my backpack all by myself. But after two weeks, I was trying to strike up a conversation with anybody I could find that spoke English. It just revealed to me that even as an introvert, I am drawn to that need to connect with other people. I came across a, a more profound example than that. It was a biography of a former prisoner of war during the Vietnam War, and this person describes the complete elation he experienced when he was reunited with other prisoners after a long time in solitary confinement. And this, this person writes, I was overwhelmed by the compulsion to talk nonstop, face-to-face with my obliging new cellmate. I ran my mouth ceaselessly for four days. We see that community gene come through, especially when we are deprived of connection and community. We are to be one just as the Father and Son and Spirit are one. That is how we were created. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Well, this week I wanted to just engage briefly two questions. Why I wanted to ask this question, first I wanted to ask this question, why is community so important? Why is this such a central theme in the New Testament and in the early church? Why does God call us to preserve unity and community with one another? And then secondly, I want to ask this very practical question of how. What might it look like for us to work against the grain of an isolating, lonely culture and carve out intentional spiritual friendships and relationships? 
Well, there are a number of things we could focus on, and I just want to look more broadly at the New Testament teaching in general around community, but there are a few things I want to highlight about why community is so vital. And the first thing, just very practically, is that it is in the context of community that we find the support we need for life. Paul speaks to this in Galatians 6, where he calls us to bear one another's burdens. And the reality is that life is too hard for us to bear alone. And you can likely point to experiences where you needed that support from somebody else, whether that was physically, someone to watch the kids or make them ill, or emotionally, someone to listen as you're processing a difficult thing, or spiritually, to have the support in, in your spiritual journey to gain wisdom and insight and encouragement from others. A second theme I notice in the, in the New Testament is that community is vital because it provides accountability for us. We are in a battle, a battle against our own flesh, against the temptations of the world and the evil one. We noted a couple of weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer that it was uh, presented in the plural tense, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We take a stand against these various struggles in community. It's not a battle we fight on our own. There's a passage in Hebrews 3 uh, which reads, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Do you notice the antidote to drifting away from losing heart, from being caught up in sin? It is that we would encourage one another daily. It is in those relationships that we find the accountability, encouragement we need to persevere through the inevitable battles that we face along the spiritual journey. Another gift of community is that it provides us with diversity. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 12 in his famous analogy of the church being like a body made up of many parts. This picture reminds us that none of us can do ministry alone. Uh, on our own, we do not represent or achieve the goals of the kingdom of God, but we have different gifts, and we need those different gifts to build up the body. Some of us have gifts of teaching, some of serving, some of encouragement, some of wisdom, the other gift of community is that we have a diversity of experiences and perspectives. There are things that your Christian friends see and encounter and understand about God that you don't see. And so it is in the context of a diverse community that we are given a bigger, more fuller picture of who God is and how God operates in our lives. So the community of Christ offers us uh, the diversity we need to, to see and participate in God's kingdom more fully. And the last thing I want us to notice, and again, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it, some of the core teachings we see in the New Testament is that community facilitates our capacity to live on mission together. Jesus makes this connection in our text today. He connects unity to mission 
as we live together in unity, he says, we will allow the world to know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know. know, Often as we think about evangelism and mission, we, we think about it in individual terms. How do I represent Christ to my friends? But in the New Testament, we see that this is often done in the context of community. We demonstrate the, the values of the kingdom of God as we live together and learn to love one another, even in the midst of differences and struggles. We are a signpost to the world of what a reconciled community looks like, the kind of community God wants to bring into this world Well, I want to end just with some real practical thoughts, just some reminders about how we can live a life that is marked by fellowship and community and spiritual friendship. I think, first and foremost, that we need to be very intentional in working against the isolating forces in our society. In this series, we've talked about how part of spiritual formation involves purgation, purging our lives from some of the things that are disrupting the deeper work of God. And I think that applies to this practice of fellowship. We, too, are at risk of cocooning away from one another. We, too, are caught up in a technological world that often isolates us from one another, even when we're sometimes in the same room with other people. We have technology that draws us away from real relationship. What would it look like for us to be more intentional in how we engage these devices? I think another how is to not just purge ourselves from those isolating dynamics, but to practice intentional hospitality. You know, back uh, in, the ni- in 1975, research shows that the average American entertained friends at home 15 times a year, and the equivalent figure is now barely half that. And so we just are less practiced in uh, the act of hospitality. What might it look like for us to be intentional in that, to engage with our neighbors I often walk my neighborhood in the evening just to unwind at the day. And what I notice is we are all isolated and I just see the glowing light of TV screens and computer screens and we're disconnected. How might intentional hospitality break down those barriers? The third thing I'll leave us with is just an invitation for us to prioritize engagement in the life of the church. As we head into fall, this is a great opportunity for us to reset our rhythms, to re-engage. It's uh, easier for us, I think, to drift away from community because community is often hard and it asks something of us. One thing that I, I would encourage you is to figure out where you might find some smaller communities within the larger church community. It actually can feel sometimes lonely and isolating sitting in a room with another 250 people. As churches grow bigger, they also need to grow smaller at the same time. Andy Stanley, uh, the pastor once said that discipleship often happens better in circles instead of rows. Now, I think there's a both and. There's something beautiful about gathering in the sanctuary with a large group of people worshiping, listening to Scripture, participating in the sacraments. 
But what might it look like for you to also circle up around a table in a smaller setting where you can be more deeply known, where you can be in relationship? We're going to be providing a number of opportunities to find a, a smaller group this fall, uh, whether that's on Sunday morning or throughout the week. I encourage you to take that intentional step of, of moving into a smaller space where you can be in relationship with one another. The last thing I'll say is that I think there's a call in this text for us to stick with community even when it is difficult. Jesus formed a very unprecedented kind of community. It was a community that was diverse. It was bringing people together from different political, theological, and social backgrounds. Uh, We're living in a cultural moment where I think we are retreating more and more so to our partisan camps And we are more isolated from those that have different perspectives. I think the church is going to play a really important role in our culture to create those third spaces where we can continue to learn to love one another and listen to one another, even in the midst of our differences. And so can I encourage you to see some of the hard parts of community and fellowship as very formative parts and important parts of what it means to grow in your faith. Well, the hope I want to leave us with ultimately is, is this, that God is the one who forms community. And we see in this text that Jesus is praying for us, that Jesus has gone to great lengths to draw us together, and we can find unity ultimately in the gospel. There's something about uh, the cross of Christ that levels the playing field, that we can come in equally at the foot of the cross. God is the one who prays for, creates, and cultivates community. So let us, as God's people, continue to echo Jesus' prayer that we might find ways to be one, to be united, particularly in a world that seeks to isolate and divide us. God bless and I'm grateful for the chance to be in community with you as your pastor this fall. Take care.